Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. Coming up on today's episode, how the work of two scholars contributed to the decipherment of the Rosetta Stone. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by The Past, a brand new website that brings together the most exciting stories and the very best writing from the realms of archaeology, history, heritage, and the ancient world. You can subscribe to The Past today for just $7.99 a month by visiting our website at the-past.com forward slash subscribe. But until the end of April, listeners to this podcast can subscribe for a whole year for half price. That's just $39.99 a year. Just subscribe for the year and enter the voucher code PODAPRIL. That's PODAPRIL, one word, all in capital letters. Now, the Rosetta Stone is perhaps one of the world's most famous historical objects. Dating back to the time of the ancient Egyptians, it was discovered by French soldiers in July 1799, near the town of Rashid, formerly called Rosetta, in the Nile Delta during the Napoleonic Campaign in Egypt. Later acquired by the British, it has been on display at the British Museum in London since 1802 and is one of the institution's best-known and most-visited objects. As you probably know, the partially damaged stone comprises of three texts, ancient Egyptian using both hieroglyphic and demotic scripts, as well as ancient Greek. Once it was discovered, work began almost immediately on deciphering the scripts, most famously by Frenchman Jean-Francois Champollion but other scholars also took up the challenge. This week, I spoke to Diane Josephowitz, co-author, along with Jed Buchwald, of a new article on the Rosetta Stone from Minerva magazine, which you can also read online at The Past, about the story of the initial attempts at deciphering the hieroglyphs, what had been up until then a lost language. Hello, Diane. Are you well today? Yes, I'm feeling much better. I've had my vaccine and I'm done with that process. So, uh, yes, I feel like I've had a new lease on life. Yes, a, a good recovery period after the, mm-hmm. the last yeah. week. I just wanted to start by asking you if you could give us a very um, basic introduction to the Rosetta Stone and what it is, where it was found, and what it actually depicts. Okay, um, yeah, it's a pretty famous object, um, but if you if you don't know, uh, the Rosetta Stone uh, was found in 1799 uh, in a place called Rosetta uh, on the Mediterranean coast of um, Egypt, so in the north. Uh, just east of Alexandria. Uh, it was found by a group of French soldiers um, who um, knew right away that they had found something uh, very interesting uh, because the um, the object itself, which is a large piece of um, a large uh, chunk of stone, uh, contained um, three scripts were inscribed um, on this stone. Uh, one of the scripts was Greek and could be translated right away. A second script was Egyptian hieroglyphs, which couldn't be translated at all, uh, except people had some ideas about bits and pieces of it. And then there was a third script, uh, the Demotic script, uh, which uh, was extremely mysterious. Um, folks had very little idea what relationship that script had to either of the um, other scripts that were on the stone. Uh, like I said, the Greek could be deciphered. Uh, very little of the other scripts uh, could be, if, any, if anything at all. Uh, and so it posed a puzzle. Uh, to to um, people who were interested in in uh, ancient Egypt at the time, uh, it, it was sort of a, a kind of almost a crossword puzzle. They knew um, what it, what the stone uh, what the inscription said in Greek, 
uh, and they had an idea that maybe the, uh, the other scripts repeated the same message. And so using the Greek, the idea was that they could infer the contents of the, um, of the other two scripts uh, working just, just from the Greek. Moving on to your article, um, you're talking about two of the central figures who were involved in the, the deciphering. The first one is a, a British doctor and a, a natural philosopher who's called Thomas Young. Yes. And then there's a French scholar called, if I'm getting the pronunciation right, maybe you want to do the pronunciation. Jean-Francois Champollion. So yes, that's, that's much that's better. That's who than, you want. <laughs> yes, that's yes. much better than that. <laughs> I think I would have managed. Uh, beginning with Young, um, we, we you were talking about the sort of unpublished work notes that the British Museum has. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about him first and then tell us what these notes show about his his work and the deciphering. Sure. Um, the notes uh, are um, his notes on the uh, Rosetta Stone's inscriptions. He put these notes together one summer. Um, as you mentioned, he was a doctor. He followed his clients to the seaside town of Worthing, which you may know. Mm-hmm. And um, while he was there, he didn't have too much to do. Um, and presumably, he didn't like the beach very much. Uh, and so he spent most of the summer in his library working on uh, the scripts. And what he did was he cut up his copy of the three Rosetta inscriptions and attempted to match them spatially, uh, each script to the other. Um, and um, in a, in a, and what, what he left behind was a set of um, paste-ups of his attempts to um, to uh, decipher uh, the Rosetta inscription in this way. And so um, we found this at the um, the British Museum and we did some work trying to analyze just what it was that he, um, he thought he was doing uh, as he was putting uh, these scripts together. He didn't get very far, uh, so I can, I can um, just kind of get to the, the end of the story there, uh, but it was very interesting to see his working, his working methods, which were very different from Champollion's. Would it be fair to say that Although Young had made progress in the deciphering, as you said, he didn't really get the full way. Um, do you think you could explain a bit why this was? Yeah, the um, I think explanations here get very precarious. Um, mm-hmm. There's a sort of um, there's one obvious uh, bit of knowledge that Champollion had in approaching the scripts that Young really didn't, and that was knowledge of Coptic. Uh, mm-hmm. which uh, is now considered and was considered by some in the, at that time uh, a um, another Egyptian language. Uh, and it, from uh, the late period of, um, of Egypt, it's written uh, in um, a script that looks like Greek uh, called Cyrillic. Um, what more can I say about Coptic? Uh, Champollion had a wonderful grasp of it. Uh, he was trained in Paris um, and uh, he had learned it and Young didn't. And Champollion used Coptic to, um, to get a kind of a foothold um, on understanding the um, the demotic uh, the demotic part of the of the puzzle, so that um, maybe goes some way toward an explanation. Possibly, um, there may be other reasons uh, why Young was uh, stymied uh, where Champollion wasn't uh, that have to do um, possibly with his attitudes toward um, the ancient Egyptians, Egyptians themselves. Uh, he was not a fan of um, the ancient Egyptian uh, history or culture. I uh, felt that it was barbaric and primitive. And um, in our book, we try to explore some of the, uh, the consequences of that attitude uh, as he was uh, grappling with the, the scripts themselves. Yes, yeah, so I, I seem to get that um, Young thought them very basic symbols that sort of they had basic meaning and they couldn't really, so you couldn't really drive any complexity for them and they sort of glossed over that. Yeah, would that uh, be right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's a that's a good way to put it. Actually, um, that he was he was uh, he was struggling to find some 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 way to to 
get a more complex understanding of the scripts, but it was very difficult for him to do that without a, a more sympathetic understanding of the, the culture they came out of. Yeah. Um, moving on to Champollion. Yes. Yes. Um, You're doing a great job. Um, thank you. <laughs> I'm only attempting his surname as you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you obviously you mentioned already that um, he knew Coptic and he knew this very well. Was that really the only reason why he got much further or was, was there more at play here? Again, um, this is speculation on my part, um, but I, I think part of it had to do with um, his understanding of Coptic, uh, though there surely was uh, more in play. Uh, Young, as you mentioned, was a doctor. He was also um, a very a prominent member of the Royal Society. Uh, he was busy with a great many projects uh, as, a, as a professional in London. Champollion was only busy with one thing. Uh, and that was um, the decipherment of the scripts. With one exception, he was very politically active, and that did uh, mm -hmm. take up quite a bit of his time. But um, his scholarly and uh, research uh, efforts were very much focused on the scripts, and that intensity of focus, I think, also had something to do uh, with the results that he got. Uh, so he was he was much more devoted. It really was his project. Yeah, he was um, absolutely uh, entranced uh, by. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the the world of ancient Egypt um, and his um, his notebooks, which are um, held in Paris and in Grenoble, uh, show evidence of this. Um, the, the devotion, I think, is the is mm. the right word. The notebooks are full of um, illustrations. Um, they're 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 uh, colored in watercolor. Um, there's there's the sort of beautiful uh, engagement uh, with the scripts themselves. All of the images um, that he reproduced um, very minutely. Um, he spent just a lot of time uh, in this uh, this world of um, of this of ancient Egypt. Yeah, well, how long roughly did it take him to sort of work this all out? I mean, was he spending decades on it? Was it like that? Yes, with Obviously brief. It a while. Um, he he had a he's. Hmm. He was in Paris as a student in 1807, and while he was there, uh, he learned Coptic. And from that point um, until the decipherment, uh, he was um, engaged in um, the research with a, with a couple of breaks uh, due to um, political factors. Uh, exile. He was exiled um, to a small town called Fijiac, where he wasn't able mm -hmm. to do any research for a while. But apart from that, yeah, it was really um, years, uh, decades long work. I see. Um, and obviously, once his decipherment of the Rosetta Stone had been sort of completed, that was that was a huge moment. It really transformed. Um, understanding of would would that be right? And that's sort of you know, what it's, I a, it's really interesting that you say that. Um, this or is, is that not right? That's that that's the story. Mm -hmm. That's the story we're told. Um, and it's a it's a neat story. It's um, it, it wraps things up uh, very nicely for us. And it's really easy to imagine that um, with the publication of the decipherment uh, in the letter to Dossier, uh, that that Champollion basically changed uh, everything. At that moment, um, the truth is actually more complicated. Uh, the paper was uh, was understood to be important at the time that he delivered it, uh, important uh, for the decipherment of hieroglyphics, but it was in no way considered definitive. And mm -hmm. what happened afterwards was um, years and years of um, of work that Champollion did, and then later, after his death, his work that his brother continued in cementing Champollion's reputation as a decipherer of um, hieroglyphs. We don't get into this very much in our book. The book would have been a thousand pages long um, <laughs> if we had. The but, complete um, history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there is a third book here, which has to do with the context of the justification of Champollion's decipherment, uh, which did go on uh, for many years after 
that first uh, that first publication. And he was involved in it. Um, that that context of justification. He worked to produce it. Went to Egypt. Uh, he published a, a large uh, a large work called the Precy, uh, which in which he um, elaborated on his method uh, for the decipherment, and that was picked up and um, discussed by many people uh, after um, in the in the decade after uh, he published that first um, that first manuscript on the decipherment. Uh, and so the the context of justification is is it's, it's a whole other story uh, in itself um, that we don't hear very much about. Mostly we hear that there was a moment where he collapsed in the street in Paris and he said to his brother, I have understood uh, the matter. And um, that's a bit of a myth is what I would say. Um, it's a convenient myth. It's easy to hang on to. And um, I would even go so far as to say that uh, it kind of absolves us of any um, need to be more interested in the complexity of the um, of, of what he actually did. Could, could you possibly tell me a bit more about the, obviously there's, there was quite a lot of technical detail in your article that, about what the hieroglyphs meant. Um, Champollion understood something that uh, Young didn't, and the, there was much more complexity to the to the symbols. Do you think you could explain a bit about that in relation to the, the names of the monarchs and the kings and stuff like that as well? Okay, yeah. See, yeah. this is, I think it's going to be a little hard to explain in yeah. a sound bite, but I can tell <laughs> you a little bit about what Coptic permitted Champollion to do with respect to the Rosetta scripts. And one of the things that it permitted him to do is to think about um, phonetics a little mm -hmm. bit more than he had previously. And so uh, it's possible to trace um, some uh, pronunciations a, a little bit through um, through his work on Coptic that then goes directly to the um, the Rosetta the Rosetta scripts and that's in his notebooks um, that that um, that evidence uh, which is something I discuss in the article. Yeah, um, it's probably best I think if you read the article because you do explain it. You do explain <laughs> oh, it well, a more clearly, clearly. And, mm -hmm, yeah. and even in the book as well. Yeah, possibly just a, a final question. Sure. Obviously, there's been a lot about there's a lot of debate in recent times about historical artifacts and the museums that hold them. And, um, you know, many have demanded that the British Museum in particular return items to the cultures and the countries from which they originated. I was just wondering, obviously thinking about the Rosetta Stone's quite messy history and its discovery by the French and acquisition by the British, do you think there is a, an argument to say that the Rosetta Stone should go back to Egypt or do you think it's better where it is? Well, I'm not an expert uh, on this. Um this question, there are debates uh, that I'm aware of, um, and people have taken positions on very different uh, different sides. Uh, the the how to put it, what I find most interesting about the Rosetta Stone was how little uh, it mattered in the beginning um, to our to our story, and even the object itself did not matter that much um, to Thomas Young or to, to Champollion. Mm -hmm. What mattered were um, the tracings of it, the pictures of it that were made uh, and circulated. Uh, the circulation of um, prints is really central to our story, prints of the Rosetta inscriptions, uh, much more so than the circulation um, of the stone itself, which sat for many years in a closet at the Society of Antiquaries after it was um, after it was removed from Egypt uh, by the British and um, brought to uh, to London. Uh, and no one seemed to know quite what to do with it or whether it even mattered all that much. Uh, I do think these objects, um, their values change as our our own values do. So there was plenty of stuff uh, pouring into um, into Britain from uh, from Egypt uh, after the defeat of Napoleon uh, there. And um, 
much of the stuff actually was celebrated. Uh, the Rosetta Stone really was not. Um, there was a lot more interest in um, more, I guess what I would say is more lapidary um, material, stuff that really uh, screamed, this is from ancient Egypt, <laughs> stuff that looked like an ancient Egyptian material that the people had seen before. Sphinxes, um, you know, uh, scarabs, uh, heads of, um, you know, uh, heads of, of, of pharaohs, those those kinds of um, objects made much more of a splash. And Rosetta Stone was not particularly valued. Since then, that's changed. And so yes. um, one of the things that I'm, I've, I am interested in is how we, how, how, we um, how our ideas about these objects uh, change over time um, and how our, our ideas of their value uh, also, uh, also change. Um, it's, it, the Rosetta Stone's come a long way from being buried under a pile of blankets in a closet. Um, the Society of Antiquaries, um, which I find uh, very interesting. Yeah, it now represents, I mean, so much the, the connections between different cultures, whereas possibly when it was first discovered, you know, it's not in itself what it, the text isn't particularly interesting, but it's more what the text has allowed people to do, if that's that's, that's right. exactly right. That's exactly right. The text itself is a, is a is a government decree. Yeah, all, all that all that it's right. All that it says is that the the temple that was near this site, um, you know, has been consecrated to the pharaoh. And in fact, there are. Um, it's not the only trilingual um, stone from ancient Egypt that we have. Others were discovered. So um, it, it was in itself not that uh, remarkable. An object um, became remarkable because of what people did with the, uh, the images of it. Diane, thank you. That's. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thanks very much. Terrific. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the time to talk today. Thanks, Diane. And don't forget, you can read Diane and Jed's article in the latest issue of Minerva magazine out now, as well as online at the past website. And if you want even more detail on the subject, be sure to check out Diane and Jed's book, The Riddle of Rosetta, How an English Polymath and a French Polygot Discovered the Meaning of the Egyptian Hieroglyphs. It's published by Princeton University Press. That's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget our exclusive discount offer for listeners such as yourself that I mentioned at the top of the show. Until the end of this month, you can subscribe to The Pass for a whole year for just $39.99. That's half the normal price. In order to take advantage of this offer, just use the code PODAPRIL, that's one word, all in capital letters, when you're signing up on our subscriptions page. Thank you to my guest, Diane Josephowitz, and to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to us and sharing it around. The Pastcast is available every Wednesday morning on Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, and from wherever else that you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again soon.